Our Father that is in heaven, hallowed is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. God, you are the eternally existent one who has always been, was never called into being, who needs no one and is dependent upon no one else. You are the way, the truth, and the life. You set in place a way for us as your creation to have a relationship with you. We have sinned greatly, and we would rather not own up to our sins. We want to justify, excuse, pardon, or forget them. While we deserve just judgment and eternal death for our sins, you have given us undeserved favor and kindness. In Christ now, we still desire to follow our own will and way. We do not always take up our cross and follow you. We indulge ourselves instead of denying ourselves. We hope to live our life to the fullest instead of losing our life for your sake. Please help us remember daily that the cross is grace, that the cross is temporary, and to bear it is worth it. Let us deny ourselves and follow you, seeking to do your will always, loving others more than ourselves, putting away sin, confessing it quickly and regularly, finding joy in knowing you and showing others what it looks like to live for you. Father, this morning, we pray that you would bring encouragement for Brett and Anna with the opportunity for joy in Jesus that is before them. We pray also for Rob Tabor, who might be in surgery this morning. We pray that you would protect our brother in Christ. You would watch over his procedure and allow his recovery to be uh, swift. Would you continue to grant him grace to come back to the body and his life group, and grow in grace abundantly in the days to come. Would you feed the people of Ellensburg Foursquare Church this morning through the faithful exposition of Holy Scripture? Shepherd their shepherd, Steve Luton. Would you deepen Restoration Church in Yakima and Pastor Kevin Diet in their relationship with you, in their relationship with your word, in their relationship with one another? Help them live out the gospel with each other. Would you provide richly for Yakima Union Gospel Mission? Lead them wisely through Mike Johnson and the board. Bring abundant life to the dry bones that have wasted much of their life away trying to save themselves. Would you let them see the joy of losing their life for your sake and finding in Jesus true life that satisfies? Father, we are not ashamed of the gospel. We desperately need the gospel. And we pray you open our eyes afresh to the beauty of the gospel this morning. Keep us close to the glory of the gospel until we see you in eternity because of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning? Nehemiah chapter 6 is our 
text, we'll read Nehemiah 6 and a little bit of 7. I considered reading all of 7, but if you've read it, you'll see why we chose, I chose not to, frankly, for my own pride, because I can't pronounce half the name, more than half the names that are in there, <clears throat> nor do I want to attempt it. So Nehemiah chapter 6. I do want to say thank you all for coming and for adjusting just a little bit this morning, uh, getting a little bit closer here in the middle section as we have a couple of rows that are out of order. I uh, really do appreciate it. Uh, earlier this week, there was a lot of plastic out on the front, uh, and I thought maybe that was a splash guard for everybody else, you know, and to worry about the pastor spitting. Or um, I was joking with someone, you see the comedian Gallagher, for those that are my age and maybe a little bit older was a comedian. I'd have no idea what jokes he told. All I know is when I was a kid, I watched him on TV and he smashed fruit. And everybody in the front few rows had to wear plastic and trash bags over themselves so they wouldn't get covered in watermelon. Anyway, we're not doing that this morning, uh, so you can rest easy. Mike would be in big trouble here if we did that, so we won't want to mess that up. Nehemiah chapter 6, if you would stand in the honor of reading God's word with us this morning. Nehemiah chapter 6. <clears throat> Now when Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Samballot and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sam Ballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Samballot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Samballot and Tobiah, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. 
And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, And his son, Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the daughter of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it these names that we will not read. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. This morning we read in Nehemiah chapter 6 and part of 7, the attacks of the enemy that came towards Nehemiah. This is not anything new as these attacks and opposition has come to both Ezra and now to Nehemiah already. As we're walking through our series in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we're seeing themes that have continued to happen The list of names that is given at the end of Nehemiah chapter 7 is a list that Nehemiah finds that was given in Ezra chapter 2. A very similar, almost identical list with some differences that are given there of the list of the genealogy of those who came up to help rebuild. This opposition that comes brings about the work of the enemy trying to stop and destroy the work of the Lord. This morning we'll see in three different ways how the enemy tries to stop the work that the Lord is desiring to do by means of his people for his own glory, for their worship of him, and for, communicate, for communion that God might have with his people. Nehemiah, as he leads the people against this opposition, finds himself again and again confronted with these men that are listed there at the beginning of chapter 6. So first, this morning, we see the enemy tries to stop the work of the Lord by distraction and deceit. In some ways, these are similar to how the enemy, even today, desires to stop, confuse, keep from happening the work that God would desire to be done for his glory and the furtherance of the gospel. But here we see that in Nehemiah chapter 6, the enemy tries to stop the work of the Lord by distraction and deceit. You notice the names listed, the unholy trinity of enemies that are given there in Nehemiah 6, verse 1. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. These are political figures, ones that were leaders of their own groups of people. 
Samballat, his name most likely is Babylonian and was a governor of Samaria. Tobiah's name is Jewish and was most likely either at this time or later also a governor of the Ammonites. And Geshem is Arabian by descent and along with his sons led a number of Arabian tribes. These men have formed a political alliance against Jerusalem to keep them from rising up, that they might be able to have more power, more influence over the neighboring nations. These three men come to Nehemiah and desire to meet in the plain of Ono. Just a quick word of advice. If anybody ever desires to meet you in the plain of Ono, you say, oh no, we are not. Going to do that. That just seems like a no brainer. Nehemiah finds this to be true, intending as he sees they were going to do him harm. And so he says no. And he doesn't go. And four times they request to meet with him, and four times he rejects them. Four times they send a messenger to him. Many of these groups of people, uh, where they were in Samaria, Ammon, the Arabians, and where they uh, were found to be was miles away. 18 miles was one that was a spot where they were supposed to meet. For Nehemiah to go 18 miles to meet with these groups of people, you can just imagine that the word would have come back. We're so sorry to regret to inform you that your friend Nehemiah, the leader of your people, has come come across uh, circumstances which have caused him harm. Nehemiah says no. Four times they reach out to him. Four times he says no. That he will not go with them and he rejects them. The enemy tries to stop the work of the Lord by distraction. You imagine the amount of time that it takes Nehemiah to consider the letters that are given and then to write a response back. To send back by their messenger that they have uh, sent out with this letter and this request. But every time that an enemy brings Uh, desires to stop the work of the Lord, it can be done by distraction. You can think of that in your own home. Maybe as you desire to do what is right within your family unit, all of a sudden difficulty upon difficulty might come and keep you distracted. Distractions of TV or media can keep you from, man, we keep wanting to do this, ending our night by reading the scriptures, reading right after dinner, And it can be distractions that all of a sudden stop the work that you know the Lord would want to do in your own home. It happens within churches. As often, elder teams can find themselves more like firemen, constantly putting out fires instead of setting a direction to move forward in the way that God wants them to do. Something they shouldn't help in putting out fires. But constantly, there can be distraction after distraction, like your ceiling falling down in the middle of a week. He didn't know that that was going to happen. Causes distractions at times. And all of a sudden, God can, or the enemy can, excuse me, desire to stop the work of the Lord by distraction, but also if that doesn't work, or on top of that, by deceit. So as the enemy is not going to stop, and Nehemiah continues to reject, all of a sudden we have one of these men who sends an open letter. Verse 5, Sam Ballot, the fifth time, sends his servant with an open letter. I take that to mean a letter that is, given, that is open for anybody to read now, not just to Nehemiah, but now this one's going to go to more people. Typically, is an open letter that is intended for more people to be able to see this. And this one is full of accusations on the Jews, Nehemiah, and their intentions. 
Notice as we had read, it says that it is reported among the nations. And I love the language of this uh, Sam Ballot uses. I don't, I don't love it, but it's so ticky-tack, right? It's so childish in many ways. But here in verse 6, and Geshem, he also says it. As if I need another person to help me out in reporting these lies. But there's a lot of people talking. And this guy, Geshem, he also says it. So you really need to listen up. You guys are intending to rebel. This is why you're doing what you're doing. You're going to rebel, and you want to set yourself up as king over Israel. This is the whole reason that this is going on. And guess what? I'm going to tell the king. The king's going to find out at the end of verse 6. I mean, just find yourself thinking you're reading a letter or hearing accusations given by a nine-year-old. People are talking, and me and my buddies, we're going to come get you. And we know you're doing bad stuff over there. And we're going to go tell mommy and daddy. I just feel like this is what they're doing. I love Nehemiah's response. He doesn't talk about any of the details. He doesn't say, no, in that one, this is what happened. Or, no, you said this, and this is what's going on. And doesn't explain any of it. He just cuts right to the quick. No such thing as you say has been done. You're inventing them out of your own mind. You are lying. You are deceiving. And he calls him right on the carpet. Nehemiah, has, he's known the king that they would be writing to, the Persian king who oversees and has overseen all the work that's being done. Is that the king you want to write to? The king that Nehemiah was the cupbearer for, who Nehemiah would have a close relationship with? Is that the king that you want to go and tattle on, that Nehemiah is now setting himself up as king over these people? Nehemiah's response, at least what is recorded, is short and to the point, you are lying. No such thing has happened. Nehemiah knows that the lies were spread so that they would stop the work out of fear of what the king would think or do. Imagine if you're the Jewish people and an open letter is given. Maybe it's posted in in the newspaper. This is a letter coming from another governor of another people. And this is what he's saying about us. We're in deep trouble if the king finds out. If the Persian king finds that we are rebelling against him and setting up Nehemiah, he's going to come and he's going to get us. There would be a lot of fear. And there would be the possibility of the people saying, Nehemiah, maybe we should rethink what we're doing here. It does kind of look like we're establishing a kingdom a little bit. We're strengthening our walls. We're setting up our defenses. All of a sudden, a lie blatantly given can all of a sudden within the people cause doubt that could linger on longer, even when the lie is dispelled, right? Is Nehemiah really setting himself up? So the next time Nehemiah talks to the people, there can be insinuations of reading into what what it is that he's saying. Does he really want to make himself king? This guy said this, and Nehemiah said it wasn't true, but now we're noticing the spreading of lies is so devastating to any relationship, organization, and especially to the church and the mission of God. God himself commands us not to lie. The ninth commandment says that. Again, in the New Testament, we are commanded not to lie. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. Lying causes people not to trust others. And here it's intended to cause the people not to trust Nehemiah as their leader, to fear the retaliation of the king. And it can have lingering effects. Nehemiah knows that their desire is to frighten us. They are thinking their hands will drop and they will stop the work. All because we just spread a lie by an open letter. So quickly, the ruining of relationships, the ruining of trust can happen. 
by the spreading of a lie. And Nehemiah says, we will not let that happen. God's work will not stop. The enemy will not win. We will call this out. We will call it what it is. Nehemiah responds with patient and careful denial. Derek Thomas says, as believers should respond to such things, he does not respond with revenge and retaliation. He does not go point by point on each of their things. He responds patiently with careful denial. And he prays. We'll see the response as the enemy desires to stop the work of God. Nehemiah's response is to pray, is to set up worship. Three different times in each of these scenes, as the enemy continues to press, Nehemiah will press not towards them in anger, but towards God in confession, in prayer, in dependence. He knows he's weak. We saw last week as Nehemiah hears the story of what's being done to his people as they are in such dire straits that they're going to sell or some have sold their children into slavery. Nehemiah is angry. And remember what he does. He checks himself. He brings himself into a place where he is controlled with patience, carefully able to assess the situation and discuss with those who are doing the harm. He knows that he's weak. He knows that his ability is, his desire might be to want to lash out, to do something else. He probably, with his own people, could take on Sam Ballot and his people. He probably could take on Tobiah and the Ammonites. But he knows that he's weak and he's limited and he needs the Lord's help. And the same is true for us. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, when he's giving us the armor of the Lord and how we are to go about fighting the enemy, he says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord. Not in your own strength, but in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that, he might, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The insinuation is that you won't be able to stand if you don't put on the whole armor. Just putting on part of it. Just putting on the armor but not coming in the strength of the Lord's might. No, it all has to be done together. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Song says, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Nehemiah is definitely facing trouble. Should we never be discouraged? Take it to the Lord in prayer. And Nehemiah does just that. As the enemy desires to stop by distraction and deceit, Nehemiah goes to the Lord and prays for strength. Secondly, the enemy wants to discredit God's people by making them fearful. They did this earlier as they desired them to be afraid and drop their hands from the work and just give up. But here, clearly, the enemy wants to discredit God's people by making them fearful. When at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And here comes the enemy again, Sam Ballot and Tobiah, as they continue to press in to try and find a way to stop the work of the Lord against Nehemiah and the people of Judah. Here we have the situation where you have this prophet who is called Nehemiah, into his presence. The prophet had to call Nehemiah into his presence because the scripture says that he's confined to his house. Now, we don't know why he's confined to his home. We would immediately uh, suspect that it might be because he has some sort of a disability, that he has to have Nehemiah come to his home, but we don't know the reason. But here, Shemaiah calls 
Nehemiah to his home, and he says, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. So this is a prophecy that Shemaiah is giving to Nehemiah. There's, there's this word, and I want you to hear this. They're coming to kill you, and this is what you ought to do. Well, that's pretty powerful. That's, that's pretty convincing in a sense of Nehemiah recognizes the enemy has come across with a lot of opposition, a lot of anger, a lot of threats. And now it would only be the assumption next that follows, sure, they want to come in and they want to kill me. And you could see how someone might say, uh, this person is saying, this is what I need to do. There is great opportunity for power in convincing by someone saying that God has said this. That God has said, this is what needs to be done. Or here is a prophecy for you. There can be. And what we see even today, there can be great abuse done by someone who would say, God spoke to me and told me this word for you. You're to marry that guy. No, I'm not. You're to be this in the future. No, I'm not. I don't have any desire to do that. I don't know how to do that. I don't know where to do that. But there can be great power and convincing by someone who says, here, this is what God has told me that this word is for you. Nehemiah hears this, but notice what Nehemiah does when this is given. And this is the way that the scripture tells us that we can know if someone is in giving a a word from the Lord, able to say that this is something that God has said or not. We're able to test the spirits that are given to us. We're able to discern, and this is exactly what Nehemiah does. The prophet Shemaiah says, let us go into the house of God. Let's go into the temple and close the doors because they're coming to kill you. As if possibly we might be able to beg for mercy that we're in the house of the Lord and they shouldn't do this egregious sin by killing someone else in God's house. So as long as we're locked in the house of God, we should be safe. And we'll just make our petition and hopefully they'll listen to us. That's all it's based on. The possibility that they would not do this, that they wouldn't want to desecrate the house of God. If they're already wanting to go against God's people and stop the work that they're doing, it doesn't seem like they would care. But nonetheless, there is an aspect of not wanting to go against the Lord. But Nehemiah knows that it is not allowed for a man like Nehemiah, who is not in a priestly family, to just all of a sudden go and be in the temple, lock himself into the temple. Not being from a priestly line, he cannot just march into the temple and lock himself in there and stay in there and thus ask the house of God to be his refuge in that scenario. There are proper ways to go about being in the temple in Old Testament Israel, and this is not one of those. They're not allowed to do this. And Nehemiah recognizes that this person who's telling him to do this must not be sent from God. And the word that he gives must not be God's word for his life because this is not true. God would not lead one to sin. God would not give advice to someone that would be sinful. If someone ever comes to you and says, here's a word from the, from the Lord for you and it leads you or encourages you to sin, It's not a word from the Lord. It's a word from the enemy and ought to be seen in discretion by the Christian hearing that, that this is not hearing from God. 
that this person is saying something that I ought not to listen to. Nehemiah recognizes that. Nehemiah then says, you are not one that I'm going to listen to. And he recognized that this person comes because Tobiah and Sinbalat had hired him. And the purpose he was hired, he says in verse 13, is that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. Go into the temple unannounced, not in the proper way, and do sin. And the people of Israel who are around would see that. And what would happen to Nehemiah's character? If all of a sudden he barges into the temple, they're going to kill me. And he barges in and he locks himself in there. They're going, all of a sudden, his character, his integrity is going to be denigrated. All of a sudden, he is going to be discredited as a leader of God's people because out of fear, he is sinning and taking and doing something he ought not to do. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1 says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him, keep his commandments, obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Nehemiah finds out that this prophet Shemaiah was hired by Sambal and Tobiah so that he would be afraid, that he would denigrate his character before his people, that the people would then quit the work because their leader is gone possibly, and out of fear, and out of a loss of a leader, the work would stop. But Nehemiah refuses. He refuses Shemaiah's uh, advice or prophecy, and he maintains his integrity among his people. Now, in our day today, God's people might, by means of the enemy, be given, uh, like we said, a word from the Lord from somebody. Now, in my opinion, based on studying the scriptures, I think that the scriptures have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. I think it actually says that, that we've been given all that we need for life and godliness. So if someone were to give me a word from the Lord, I hope it's from God's word itself, not something that we've heard or we believe that God has said to us. Give me scripture. Let me be led by God's word itself. But Christian, you discern if someone comes and says, this is a word from the Lord for you. Is this in line with God's word itself? Is this saying the same thing that God's word is? Because we have scripture right here in front of us and be able to take what somebody else says. One, you want to sort of graciously receive that maybe, but also be saying, does this align with what God's word says already? Be able to test the spirits, knowing that there is an enemy who is deceitful and who is desiring to, by cunning measures, Tear us down, tear us apart, stop the work that God would desire to do in us by means of confusion or harm or abuse. So brothers and sisters, the one thing that we must know, we might not know, does this person, did they actually receive a word from the Lord or not? We might not know that. 
But what we do know is that God has already given us his word and that God has given us his Holy Spirit to be able to discern these things. And so being able to rest in the word that God has given to us already. And what we do know we need to do is to know the word. We can't discern if something someone's telling us is scriptural if we don't know what the scriptures say. And so as God's people, instead of seeking after a word from the Lord, let us seek after God's word already that he has given to us. We say this regularly, but if you want to hear God speak audibly to you, read scripture out loud. You can guarantee that this is God's word that we are hearing because God has given us miraculously his word already, and we are so grateful for it. Nehemiah doesn't stop there, though, with just being able to discern and cast away the word that Shemaiah has given to him. But he says in verse 14, notice, remember Tobiah and Sambalat. Remember them, oh my God. Remember we said that in each of these scenarios, Nehemiah presses into his dependence on God and into worship. And in this second scenario, he doesn't say, God, strengthen my hands for the work that I'm doing, but he says, remember my enemies. What does that mean when Nehemiah prays, remember my enemies? Like, remember to send them a birthday card? Like, remember them with good, warm, fuzzy feelings? Remember Tobiah and Simbala, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. You remember just a few verses earlier that when they wrote the open letter, they said, you have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. That within the people of Israel, there was the office of a prophet, a priest, and a king. And the prophet was the one who spoke on behalf of God. It's a wonderful thing that prophets are being set up in the Old Testament here to be able to proclaim the word of the Lord. But as we read in Deuteronomy, there are false prophets And this Nehemiah is seeing that among these prophets who are raising up, there are ones who are saying things that are not true, that are desiring to make me afraid. God, remember them. In Psalm 35, the psalmist prays against his enemies. And he says, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. The psalmist is not asking that God would remember them in a warm and fuzzy way, but that God would remember the evil that they have done and bring justice for it. For almost a year, Many Christians, many people in the world, but many Christians have been praying for Ukraine. You see that in a lot of places, right? Pray for Ukraine. People put that on their social media. People talk about it. There's stickers on cars, maybe. Pray for Ukraine. But what does that mean to pray for Ukraine? What are we praying for? Are we praying that Russia, as a people or as leadership, comes to realize what they did was morally wrong and they write an apology to Ukraine? That would be amazing. But what we are actually probably praying for is more likely that Ukraine would win the war, that the Ukrainian people, that their missiles would find their spot, that their tanks would, guns would find their exact location that they want to hit, that their troops would destroy more Russian troops or Russian vehicles. And by doing so, that Russia would realize they've lost and they don't have the ability 
to defeat Ukraine and invade them anymore, and they would turn tail and go home, right? In some sense, that's what we're praying. When we pray for Ukraine and we pray that they would be vindicated from this evil that's happening, in some way, we're praying that the unjust actions, the immoral actions of the Russians are put to death. We do the same when we pray, come Lord Jesus, don't we? It's a simple prayer that we are genuinely and honestly saying, we want the Lord to come now, but when we pray, come Lord Jesus, there's a flip side to that. That all the sudden says, we know from the scriptures when it says, the Lord will come on high for his people and bring them to himself and usher in the end what happens to those who are apart from Christ. So we as Christians are praying for Ukraine. We're praying for the safety of other people. We're praying for vindication, for injustice to be, uh, the wrongs to be righted. We're praying that abortion would stop. We're praying for all of these things. We're praying for the Lord to come soon. But there's a flip side that all of a sudden means, but in our prayer and the answer to it is that other people die and ultimately spend eternity in hell. We're not praying for that. But do you recognize when we're praying for this, we're praying for God to mete out justice, that there is an aspect to that for us that is cringeworthy, that says, but I want him to come. Yes, but when he comes, this is what's happening. Christians can be able to hold both and walk and chew gum at the same time and say, yes, there is a longing for Christ to come and for wrongs to be made right for God to renew and restore all things back to the original of which he has made. God, remember your people. Remember the sufferings of your people. Remember the wrongs of my enemies. And God, when he does so, does not come just to say, hey, here's a candy gram. Here's, a, here's just a, a nice little note to say I remembered you. But for those who stand apart from Christ, their end is judgment. The scriptures pray this over and over again. We see this in the psalmist as they're praying for justice, as you read Revelation, and in the end, the people are crying out hallelujah to the one who has brought vindication on Babylon and the evil atrocities that have been committed. We recognize that while in no way does, do we or God want anyone to perish apart from Christ, but we also want God in his holiness and his justice to be able to make wrongs right. And for God to do so, that that means that the, the wicked will be put to death. So when we think in those ways, when we pray, we pray for the victims who are being harmed because they're being put to death. We pray that God would bring and meet out justice but we also pray that the gospel would continue to go forward. That just as much as we want the Ukrainian people or other victims, those who are innocent, to be protected, that we want even more that those those who are doing the harm would come to faith. Their hearts would be transformed by the gospel. This begins to be tricky stuff. That begins to pull on our emotions in both ways. We have to run back to the character of our God. In the same way, the same God who has given us his word, that we have all that we need for life and godliness right here, the same God who reminds us of his character. Remember them, oh my God. This is Nehemiah's second prayer. The first one is strengthen my own hands to continue in the work. Second is remember my enemies. 
Let us be praying that as God brings about, the enemy pursues us in whatever means and ways that might look like, by deceit, by trickery, by distraction, by desiring to pull apart our character, that we would be a people who pray, that God would strengthen us, and that God would continue to move people from his path that he might do his glorious will in the furtherance of the gospel. May God continue to further the gospel where it has not gone. Both ways, both times, the enemy pursues by deceit and trickery. And both times, Nehemiah refuses and he prays. What an example to us. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him. Stand firm in the strength of the Lord. The third way the enemy pursues We see in the next few verses, the enemy pursues fracturing relationships to isolate the people of God. Fracturing relationships to isolate the people of God. When we read those last few verses of chapter 6, beginning of verse 15, he says the wall was finished, and on the 25th day, in 52 days the wall was finished. Whether that's 52 days total, which is really fast, it could be more likely it was 52 days after Sanballat and Tobiah and these guys had come after them. But nonetheless, it's an incredibly fast time, so fast that all the nations around them are fearful and going, God must have had a hand in this because there's no way that this group of people could have done it that quickly. So the work is done. And instead of Nehemiah and his people being afraid and falling under the enemy's design for them, instead the nations are afraid. Because God has worked in a way, bringing about the completion of the wall in such speed. But even then, even with all of that, the enemy continues to pursue. The enemy desires to continue to stop the work, to continue to discourage them. And notice how this one happens. Earlier we saw deceit and distraction. Then we saw uh, as they desired to pull apart their character. And now here, verse 17, comes by the sending of letters. Something so harmless. Sending a letter to somebody. How can that be harmful to relationships? How can somebody sending a letter to someone else, uh, whispering secrets, how can that be harmful for relationships? But here in verse 17, you have people who uh, are in an oath with Tobiah. Those who are close to Nehemiah, those who are inside the wall, are bound by oath to one of the enemy. They're in close relationship. There's family involved. Blood is thicker than water. All of a sudden, now you have all these people who are Nehemiah's people. They're following their leader. They're wanting to follow Nehemiah's example, but they are bound by oath, not to God, not to Nehemiah, not to his people, but to one of the enemy. And so what begins to happen is the passing of back and forth of letters. These guys are persistent. And as all their other avenues didn't work, they continue by deceit and distraction, hiring a false prophet, and now through familial relationships, or those who are devoted to them, to drive a wedge between Nehemiah and the Jews who are inside the wall. If you can't destroy them from the outside, work at destroying them from the inside. The enemy is deceitful. The enemy is tricky. The enemy comes after those that are closest to us. The primary tactic of choice is the writing of letter, the passing of secrets. This is so damaging. 
And this type of relationship and this type of uh, wily work of the enemy has no place among God's people. As letters are being sent back and forth, some who are bound by oath to Tobiah, they're sharing secrets. They're sharing how great Tobiah is in Nehemiah's presence. He said, they speak of his good deeds in my presence. And then they report my words back to him, stabbing him in the back while praising the enemy right in his face. You imagine the hurt that is given by people intent on raising up this enemy, whatever it is that they're saying about Tobiah and all of his great deeds that he has done, this horrible guy who desires to destroy the people in their work and giving it to Nehemiah and then taking all that Nehemiah says and cutting to the quick of the relationship and all of a sudden in deceit and treachery to share that with the enemy. This will destroy anyone in leadership. To have people who are bringing up someone else and then to be able to take all that you are doing and give it to other people, to be twisting and going back and forth with others. To have someone take your people, form alliances with them and share secrets is so damaging. And this is why adultery is so devastating to a marriage. Because the offending spouse has invited someone into the most intimate of spaces, sharing personal body secrets, intimate secrets with someone else who is not their spouse, finding pleasure in someone instead of their spouse. Can you imagine how destructive that is for the marriage relationship, but for any relationship? The sharing of secrets, the passing along of letters that is desiring to destroy, how does Nehemiah respond? As the enemy would love to do nothing more than find the smallest of ways, even the passing of letters, to divide God's people, how does Nehemiah respond? We notice there at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 7, when the wall had been built and I set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother these two guys, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. So Nehemiah continues the work. And you notice the work that he's doing, setting up doors, okay, the security of the walls, they're all set. The gatekeepers are in place. The singers and the Levites are appointed. I find it strange, and it comes up again later, how many singers he lists here in this work. Singers, why? Levites, why? Nehemiah is continuing to set up for his people the worship that God ordains that they ought to be about. Nehemiah, in the midst of all of this, instead of digging in his heels and continuing in his leadership, is able to step away and to delegate to others. Nehemiah continues to press towards God in worship by the setting up of singers and Levites. And so all the structures for the people are set up. And he, in humility, delegates others to do the work and then shares with them all that they need to be doing at this moment. You notice there were several verses of like tips. Uh, don't open the doors until the sun is hot. Uh, and then when you do shut them, bar them as well and do these types of things. And the city is large and the people are few. And he desires to protect them. In the midst of all of these things, God is continuing to, by means of Nehemiah and his response, protect his people, continuing to stop the work of the enemy that desires to harm them or to stop them by fear. But Nehemiah continues to make arrangements for worship. 
He delegates leadership to others. He equips the people well to defend themselves. And in the midst of all that he is facing, Nehemiah stays focused on what is most important. You notice that Nehemiah has taken all the opposition himself. At first, when I read through this, I thought, where is his community around him to help shelter and support? Well, we have some of that as we list out all of these names that go on. But some of those are historical names that were given before. But Nehemiah takes all of the brunt to protect the people, to focus on what is most important, the continuing of the people of God and faithful worship of their God. He faces hard attacks. We're reading these, but you know, just like I do, that any one of these attacks by the enemy would be incredibly difficult for us to take. I pastored a small church uh, for a couple of years in Oregon. And occasionally, I don't know, six to eight times in those three years, I got anonymous letters. Those anonymous letters did not come with checks. They did not come with, thank you, you're doing a wonderful job, we're so happy for you. It came with criticism. And you don't know an anonymous letter until you read it, right? And you don't see a name at the bottom. And the damage is already done. I remember going one time and talking to a seasoned pastor who had pastored a church about 30 minutes away from me. Pastored the same church for about 30 plus years. And I was telling him about an anonymous letter that I had gotten. And he says, as he's referring, talking to me, he says, Stephen, I've gotten a few of those over my time. He begins to open up a drawer in his desk and pulls out a stack like this. And he said, I've gotten so many over my time here that my wife knows that it takes me three days to process. He said, I get angry. Then I pray. He said, then I'm able on the third day to finally move, move past it and somewhat and get back to work. But he said, if those people knew that three days for each one of these letters, that that's what it takes. You think of these letters, and we're just reading the story of Tobiah and these letters going back and forth, but the harm that would cause Nehemiah on top of all of the difficulties that's already come. And Nehemiah presses into praying, presses into worship, knowing that people are watching him. Parents, soldiers, people, Levites, his children, others are watching how Nehemiah will respond. And the same is true for every one of us. As the enemy continues to attack us, as the enemy attacks in different ways, by temptations and difficulties and deceit, distraction, how do we respond? How do we endure difficulties or attacks from the enemies? Knowing people are watching. Knowing that there is a community of people around us. The kids, your brother and sister are watching. How you respond to different attacks of the enemy or temptations that come your way. Parents, your spouse and your children are watching. Your friends and your coworkers are watching. Your friends, your neighbors, your life group, no difficulties that you might be facing, that you have let them in on, and they might even be aware of how you're facing them, what you are prioritizing in the midst of those. But for us as God's people, may we continue to press into praying. May we continue to press into worship. May we continue to look to the one who never gave in to the enemy. Look to the one who stared death and the enemy in the face and continue to march straight at them. He knew what he was going to face 
before he ever was born as a human. And he stayed determined even unto death. Let us fix our eyes on the gospel, not on the enemy. Don't continue to give the enemy any more credit or publicity in and through your life. But as you see the enemy attacking, may we continue to keep our eyes fixed on the gospel. As Paul writes to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 1, he tells them to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. May the way that we face difficulties, opponents, the enemy, may be a clear sign of their destruction and of our salvation for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel, and the way that we stand firm, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that we do have hope in the gospel, that when we do face opposition by the enemy, whether that is the enemy himself, the big E, capital E, Satan himself, or whether that's our own self, our own hearts, that there is hope that there is always hope, that you have already overcome the evil one, and that we who are in you can as well. So Father, would you continue to strengthen us for the fight? Would you continue to help us live in a wartime mentality, desiring to defeat the enemy, that we might continue to press into a relationship with you and growing in communion with you? That the opposition of the enemy would drive us more into our salvation and would signal utter destruction for them and would ring the bells of our salvation again and again. Father, would you continue to give us grace? And when we do fail, would you continue to remind us of your grace that has been lavished on us, that there is forgiveness at the cross and that we can lift up our weary heads and look to the one who is who has come already and is coming again, that he grants forgiveness and grace and restoration to those who are in Christ and will do so until we see him face to face and all wrongs are made right in the new heavens and the new earth. Until then, we pray, come Lord Jesus. We ask your blessing in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.